Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, it's a Memorial Day this weekend. And it's a very early Memorial Day. And it's funny because since Joanne moved out here, it's her first um, Memorial Day in L.A. She was always in New Jersey. And what's amazing about it is she's wondering why no one's getting excited. And I said, well, no one gets excited because back in New Jersey, when it's Memorial Day, everyone goes to the beach and it starts the summer. Well, for us, we can go to the beach almost every day. I think this year we've had maybe... 18 days were bad we couldn't go so no one gets excited and, and when people get excited about Memorial Day in LA is the town empties out and we can actually drive the 405 on Saturday and Sunday no one bothers us anyway I have a great show this is just a gentleman um, I'm a fan of I've, I've seen him on many of those uh, those shows where they talk about music and like the bio things and, and he's a great uh, writer and it's uh, it's David Wild how you doing David? Uh, great. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. It's, it's good to see your guy with the music. I know you were just at the, uh, well, you said Timberlake just uh, tweeted you. Uh, retweeted me. Yes. No. Uh, yeah. No. It's. I, I feel validated uh, <laughs> that uh, it's funny, like the stupidest tweet I've ever done and uh, JT retweeted it. So now it will be uh, my my legacy will be a tweet uh, from Justin Timberlake. Now, what did you tweet? Oh, just a, about a song of his. And it's weird. I mean, uh I think the reason he did it is he had a joke that got a lot of pickup this uh, two nights ago that you don't like to say this, but I may have written for him, and it it was it really took off. So I think he was just trying to. That was his. That was my kickback. Was okay. a retweet. Now did you did you get a bunch of favorite? Because you always seem like when someone famous like is his level retweets, all of a sudden it's like your name will come up in like eight thousand tweets. Like people will go, they'll favorite it or they'll retweet it, and every time you retweet it, your name's in it. So have you started getting that uh, that backlash yet? That that good that good wave? I haven't really checked it out. It's very funny. I think uh, I have because of the nature of what I do most of the time, which is writing for these people for award shows. That's a lot of what I, I do, uh, and I have made certain. Art- artists and hosts are my friends so i think i sort of have this weird conglomeration of people so it's sort of like you know between carrie underwood and ll cool j and you know justin and some of these people i feel like i am a gathering point for uh you know for for this uh, celebrity fun so now you're from New Jersey. We talked about that. You had to bring that up. Yeah, I, no. I, I love New Jersey. Yes. You know, I, I, you're from Tenafly, right? I'm from the mean streets of Tenafly. Yeah. <laughs> Very rough neck of the woods. We, uh, Some of us were summer homeless. It was really a rough town. <laughs> so you, did you always love music as a kid? Or what got you into the field of writing about music and writing? Was Did you have a very uh, nurturing uh, home where they encouraged you to write and listen to music? Yeah, well, uh, I will say I had incredibly nurturing in the sense that uh, my dad said that encouraged me from the earliest age especially uh, to follow my bliss you know he always said like if you love what you do you'll never work which uh, sometimes it's true and on many levels but uh, I think uh, yeah I fell in love with music it was uh, uh, and he completely nurtured that obsession you know he paid for Billboard magazine which was you know nine dollars or whatever uh, every weekend at the uh, at the magazine stand he they uh, my mom and dad allowed me to have a charge account at the bookstore in our town in Tenafly, which 
and gradually they became aware that they also sold like the top 10 records. Okay. Uh, and so I was charging up a storm of Bob Dylan and Beatles and uh, Stones, and eventually uh, they had to cut me off. Well, you know what's funny about the music, because I always loved music, and I remember as a kid, I would love when I mean, you would see the uh, Columbia House, you get the flyer, and you would sit there and you'd see all these albums, and you'd be like, you'd be like I want to get this one. And then you, it's like a six, there was like 16 for a buck or whatever, and eight for a buck. And it, always, it was so funny because you would sit there and go through, and you'd always take like that chance on a group that you'd heard of, but you didn't know the album. Like every, right. I did that with uh, Leonard Skinner, Give Me Back Your Bullets, because I was like, everyone talked about Skinner. And it was always cool when you would get those albums that you would sit there. I mean, you, you've loved music. You must have loved to read the liner notes and just the, uh, the covers. I mean, did that just fascinate you? My wife says that the most... Uh, excited I get is when I have liner notes uh, you know and they're not the most lucrative at one point they were pretty lucrative when the record industry was uh, going gangbusters but now uh, it's just my favorite thing because I was that kid who obsessively read every word on every record and studied album covers to f try to figure out how life should be lived and uh, uh, it's funny I think I didn't do drugs because it would have cut into my music money okay and i think music probably saved me <laughs> professionally chemically in every way all i wanted to do was buy more music and it's so funny because you know to this day i guess i have too many friends i never downloaded illegally but like i try i look at my kids now who are like uh you know 14 and 16 and i just think god they don't even understand really like sometimes they'll I'll buy them a CD, but like that's not really how they interpret music anymore. It's like there's barely a store to buy one in, and uh, that was I literally was raised in, in in record stores. Now, what were some of your favorite covers back then? I mean, looking back as a kid, like everyone always talks about, you know, Boston was a great cover and Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. But as someone like you, as you you follow music so much, I mean, like how many kid albums would you have like when you were a kid? Would you say like what's the biggest your collection ever got? Oh, uh, before I got married, it was tens and twenties and thirties of thousands and, really and i gradually as i decided to have kids and have a house i have unloaded the vast majority of it because frankly the nature of life and definitely my life i never have time to just sort of sit and listen to music and when i the, when i do which is like the last uh we've been trying to find a time to get together right. and for the last month i've, I've done seven uh, I think four or five TV shows and two other events uh, in four different cities. So when I travel, like last night I was coming back from the Billboard Music Awards in Vegas. And, you know, and that's, you know, 45 minutes where I will sit with my, you know, uh, phone and be able to really just listen to music. But I don't have that much opportunity to do that. I do listen, like uh, earlier this year, it was great because the day after the Grammys, I did the, I wrote the Beatles tribute uh, okay. that was on uh, CBS, the Grammy tribute to the Beatles. And I basically had my holiday spent getting paid to listen to Beatles, which is kind of the dream come true. You oh, know? yeah. That's, uh, I would be doing that anyway, but it was great to have an excuse. And it was even more surreal because I was actually writing stuff that I had to send to the Beatles, you know, to to uh, Paul and Ringo, and then to Olivia uh, and Yoko, things that needed to be approved. Like, for instance, in the Beatles tribute, there was a little story of each Beatle. So to actually try to sum up each Beatles' life and how they got into the Beatles, is it's a, that's a pleasure for me to do anyway. But then to actually write it and have 
you know, get notes. Right. <laughs> I, I, that must, you got to think. I mean, I always say that like, for me when I meet people, like I see, like I saw you, I've seen you on TV and stuff like that. And even I apologize. Like, oh, no, no, but no, it's like I, I always, I enjoy you know, what you say because you, you're a musical expert. And for me, it happens to me when I get guests on my show who I was fans of where I saw like when I was in college. Yeah. And when they sit in your studio and I talk to them, I'm like, I'm always like, Wow, but for you, it's a beetle. I mean, it's like it's like it does, it's like it doesn't get bigger than that. So you're a huge musical fan. You're writing stuff, and I'm sure that when you were a little kid, you never sat there and thought, "Oh, one day Yoko Ono is going to be giving me notes." Well, with the Beatles, it's been interesting because I had the honor of, in different ways, uh, getting to express my thanks to all of them. John sadly was dead by the time I did that, but I wrote a tribute. Uh, a John Lennon tribute right after 9-11 in New York that hosted by Kevin Spacey and working with Yoko and I did feel like I got to say what I wanted to say about John I toured with Paul and Linda right before Linda got ill for like months around the world or Argentina a lot of South America some of in, in America and Yo uh, and in fact Linda was the first person to tell me to marry my wife and she for some reason took an interest in me and she wanted to have lunch with my wife, and I just started dating her, and she said, you have to marry that girl. Do you think I know something about marriage? Married that girl. So in fact, here, I'll just show you this. This will be great uh, radio, but this are my two sons at the Grammys with wow. Paul, and it was surreal to me, because I thought, I might not, they might not exist uh, if it weren't for Linda sort of telling me, marry that girl. See, it that, really was. That's so cool, though. I mean, yeah, and it's just, it's just, it's crazy to think that, you know, and to think someone of that that, uh, that stature so big that said saw something in you and your wife and probably just said hey do it you right. know I mean that's just awesome no it was very 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 moving to me at least so now I know you went to Cornell right I think so yeah now, now did you go as did you when you were in high school did you say I'm going to write or what did you do or what were you going to do when you were in high school uh, I am a total uh, testament to the fact that if you can only do one thing sometimes life is easier I know a lot of friends who were brilliant who had a million interests and some of them get lost. You know, sometimes in terms of trying to pick that path, you can waste decades. Uh, I only really wanted to write, and I only wanted to write about music. And uh, I don't think I would have had the balls to keep pushing to do it. I'm not that aggressive in that way, but I got very lucky. My I, I was the arts editor for my middle school paper, uh, and then I was the arts editor for Cornell Daily Sun from freshman year on, writing reviews. And I got very lucky in that a guy named William Kennedy, the guy who wrote Ironweed, was a visiting professor at Cornell. He took an interest in me uh, right before his book came out, right before Ironweed came out. But when Ironweed came out and he won the Pulitzer, he was a hot commodity. And he, uh, a friend, he basically went to Esquire magazine and told them to hire me. And I just sort of jumped a million steps and became a, sort of an arts editor at Esquire right from college, which was really thanks to him and a guy named David Hershey, an editor. And uh, then Jan Wenner from Rolling Stone heard about this guy who started a record column uh, at Esquire and asked me to come over to Rolling Stone. And that was just, you know, literally my dream come true. Well, in the beginning, when you were working for Esquire, were you were they telling you what artist to write about or what musician, or, or did you sit there and you, you had these, I mean, how would you find who would you write about? Because there's so many bands and there's yeah. so many albums, and, and you know, it's you, you touch some people, I mean, some people get really irritated. There was an article in uh, Philadelphia Magazine a few weeks ago. I'm a huge Springsteen fan, just yeah. growing up in New Jersey, and it said- Yeah, I heard, he, I heard he's good. Yeah, exactly, but someone said, why Springsteen sucks, and right. this guy wrote, and it was really, it was, it was, 
I think he was trying to do shock humor. Sure. And but you could t- I was looking at some of the responses and I'm not going to respond to him, yeah. but people were like, "Oh, you're nuts." And I think, you know, he chose to do that and he got the responses. For you, how did you decide who you would write to and were you worried if you gave wrote something bad, were you worried about you would get a little backlash? Yeah, I in uh in prep school, I went to a prep school called Loomis Chafee in Windsor, Connecticut. My first week there, I wrote an anti-grateful dead article and I almost died. I was almost killed for in in new england prep schools you don't say anything against the uh, grateful dead so since then i've never been scared to say what i think uh when i got to esquire and started this record column with a woman named lisa bain was he uh working with her as an editor uh i literally a esquire was such a respected magazine still is i still get, i've gotten it for years oh yeah uh you could get anyone to write anything i mean in a short period that i was running this record column with lisa i think i had Updike write a review. I think Tom Wolfe, um, Bernard Malmud, uh, John Waters. I mean, you could get anybody so to write a record review. They and would write a record review for your column. Yes. Now, how would you approach them? Would you sit? I mean, because back, it's like now, it's like, how did I approach you? I saw you on Twitter, and right. then you go, you go from the Twitter, and right. you, you follow, and then you can send a message or whatever, or you email. Back then, it's like it wasn't nearly accessible especially if they're big they're big authors absolutely so how would you get in touch back then there was a esquire had like a rolodex and it would be like william styron john updike i mean because everyone wrote for esquire and had or had at least and they were very accessible uh to esquire if you know if they got a call from esquire they were uh willing to give it a shot for two dollars a word or whatever the good going rate was now journalism I feel like I hit the end of the golden age of journalism, and I sort of transitioned. I'm still, you know, contributing at Rolling Stone, but really, I'm I transitioned into sort of TV at a very lucky time because then, you know, internet hit, came and and screwed up so many businesses, uh, including the music business and journalism. Why do you think that you, it was a gold? I mean, why do you think it was the end of the golden age when you were on there? Just because it used to be a lot of money, a lot of freedom. No one could really, if they had to criticize you, they could write a letter to the editor that would arrive two weeks later. But now it's like this instant free-for-all in journalism where it's uh, uh, I executive produced a movie uh, a year and a half ago called Celebrity, with a cell being with an S about the history of celebrity and in it uh, uh kid rock had a quote that sums it up to me and i don't know if i can can i curse on this not I don't the know. f word not the f word. not the f word okay so uh what kid rock said at, on in the movie is and i'll have to keep it cleaner was that if jesus christ himself came back to earth the first comment in the comment board would be jesus is a effing D-bag. Okay. That would no, be... You know what's funny? Usually we can curse, but I just... my my I went to Richard Stockton College in New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. Small school. And they actually just... They're going to start playing my show. Uh, so I can't I can't curse. I mean, before it's I like, can try and do that cleaner, but that's as no, clean no, but as that's I can just keep clean. Yeah, no, but I'm saying just... Yeah, I'm, I'm like, you know, it's just... It's cool for me. So you know, my college now, I went... It was called Stockton State when I went yes. there. Now it's called Richard Stockton College. Oh, cool. And it's changed a lot. It's weird. The whole area, like New Jersey's changed a lot. So, I was just back there uh, for Mother's Day in Jersey. I, I, I love Jersey. I have had the misfortune to marry a girl from out here who has raised my children to make nothing but Jersey jokes. So I, I live in a, I'm constantly mocked for the garden state, which I love so well. You know, it's funny. And you're a fellow Jersey guy. And I always, that always irritated me that people would just pick on Jersey. First of all, when they would say Joyzy, no one says that in New Jersey. No one says Joyzy. I mean, you're from North Jersey. I'm from South Jersey. Yes. 
I don't know anyone who says Joyzy. And then people are like, oh, you know, it's it's no well. Newark stinks. Okay, so what? It's like besides Newark and Camden, that both stink. The state's a beautiful state. You, I mean, Cherry Hill. I would drive an hour to the beach. You can go an hour to the mountains. Yes. I mean, it just it just it gets such a bad rep. Oh no, I love it. The ultimate to me Jersey story was. Uh, it was a teen tour went to Israel, which is, which you might have gathered I'm Jewish from that, uh, but it's true. And I was in the middle of the desert, getting, uh, trying to buy, like water from a guy who would make some sort of bread on cow, camel dung. I mean, a guy in a hut in right. the middle of nothing, and he said to my, my friend Joey Bernstein and I from New, who's also uh, from Tenafly, New Jersey, he said. Uh, where are you from? He sort of broken English, and uh, we said New York. He goes, "Where New York?" And we said New Jersey. And he went, "New Jersey," <laughs> and laughed at us. And I thought, this is a guy cooking on camel yeah. dung in the middle of the desert with living on a, a piece of twine, and he's still looking down on Jersey. So when you okay, well, I'm to talk about Rolling Stone. So you went to Rolling Stone. You're a contributor. Editor. Now, now, were you living in North Jersey or New York then, or where were you living? Uh, I, no, I was from Jersey when I uh, started at Esquire. I was commuting from home, but by the time I was it uh, became music editor of Rolling Stone. I was living in the city. Okay. Now, did you love the city? I mean, because I, I mean, everyone. Plus, you must have been going to see. I mean, did you go to see a lot? Of, did you get to see a lot of bands and stuff like that? I mean, you must have had some major, major perks. Oh no, the perks! You can't believe the perks. I do remember sleeping out for tickets the night before I started at Rolling Stone. I slept out at Madison Square Garden to get Petty and Dylan tickets, who were two of my favorites, and. Uh, there was a riot, and I, you know, people got beaten up. Uh, I got hurt a little bit in the in that riot outside of Madison Square Garden. The next morning, I got to Rolling Stone, and literally someone came around. Who wants tickets for Dylan and Petty? I mean, anything you wanted. The record industry was flush. I was there when they were the, you know, when I moved out here in 1991. The record industry threw me a party, uh, you know, probably a. Hundred thousand dollar party to greet me to L.A. I mean, that was when the record companies. It was a, there was so much money back then, and that's not the case now. Well, as you were sitting there back in New York and writing for Rolling Stone, I mean, you came out here. Did you have an idea that you would start writing? Because you write write comedy somewhat. Did you you were writing these reviews and, uh, you, and so you basically were writing reviews and stories about bands. Yeah, and I was really the music editor for running the coverage of the music for about four years, five years, and then. What happened was uh, I came out here to do a story on, I believe it was Winona Ryder, and then it became a story on Joni Mitchell and another story on Sinead O'Connor, and eventually Jan Wenner, uh, you know, the founder of Rolling Stone and the big boss said, why don't you just live in L.A.? You should be a, my West Coast guy. And that made helped me fall into television because one year we did a uh, Rolling Stone TV special, like Rolling Stone the Year in Review, and I was off camera interviewing all the stars and I made I think Spielberg during the interview made him laugh and Joel Gallen who was the producer of the show said you're funny you should write for my uh, the MTV movie awards which he was running or the VMAs and so I started writing I remember that year I think it was like Bob Odenkirk David Cross me might have been Louis CK I mean he just threw me in a room with a comedy room to write jokes for the show and that's how I fell into TV. And uh, that was, at for a few years, it was just sort of an occasional thing I'd do once or twice. But then uh, after 9-11, uh, he was also, Joel also ran the uh, Tribute to Heroes at Telethon after 9-11. And he, because he'd worked with me, asked me to be the head writer for that. And that one 
all sorts of awards, Peabody's, uh, Emmys, everything. And I, because I was a head writer, I think it appeared in a few articles. So all of a sudden I was asked to write the Grammys and all sorts of events. And I, that's how I fell into TV. Now, is, I mean, it's such a difference. I mean, writing, you know, reviews to writing jokes and my background's in stand-up. And writing a joke is like, you know, people think it's easy. It's not. Right. And, you know, and it's not. I mean, my thing is like for what you, when you write reviews and stuff like that, for me, I could never do something like that because I just, I'm not that good of a writer. I mean, I can't express myself I you know I can write a short story that's funny but for you it must it must have been weird because you were coming from writing reviews and to sit there all of a sudden you know you'd never done comedy it's not like you would sit there and were writing funny in your reviews did you did you make I mean were you one of the quiet people that made people laugh did you know you could write the funny or were you not sure uh, I what I learned I was I think a good journalist I don't think I was a great journalist what I found when people started asking me to write TV is that my skill was that I actually was good for writing for other people's voices. So, for instance, like uh, I remember early on, like Jeff Foxworthy, who was hot at that moment, uh, you know, he had You Might Be a Redneck. And on some award show, I said, they said he's giving out the award for best reality show, so write him something. And so I wrote, You Might Be a Reality Show fan. And it was like five quick jokes. And he called me over. He goes, People try to write for me in my voice all the time, and they it always sucks. And this is good. And that that's what hit time and time again. What I found was, I think I probably wasn't a great journalist because uh, I don't think I had a sense of my own voice as well as I had a really good sense of other people's voices. So, and to up until like last night, if Justin Timberlake, you know, reaches out to me and says I need something funny for this, I can send him something, and he was actually in. Helsinki or something. I think it was Helsinki. And he shot it and he actually read exactly what I sent him and it sounded exactly like him. And that's the key for the kind of thing I do is not can I make you, can I make everyone famous sound like me, but can I make them sound like themselves? Because that's what they, no one wants to feel something is forced. They need right. to, it needs to be in their voice. So uh, I, I was, I, and it's funny because I am frequently paid just to write jokes for very, very famous, powerful people. I, I just came from doing two, like an upfront, and a, which is an industry thing, and a new front. And I realized half the time I'm just brought in to do comedy. And to comedians, it's always this weird thing because like, they sometimes go, well, you're not a comedian. And it's like, no, I'm amateur funny. But I find that when you're, I've been in a room with, 10 comedians and if you get in a room with 10 comedians it always goes to the most extreme usually dirty uh place but it doesn't go necessarily to the most the thing that people will actually say on tv uh it, it goes to a club kind of place right so i've benefited from being someone and i get hired a lot because i can write something that you can say on tv and not get humiliated by and you probably don't like comics love to go off on a tangent when you're writing something because it's not you're not writing you're writing for someone else so it's probably easier for you to write because you know okay i can do it in this comics always think well if i do a bit then i gotta write this and then the tag right the problem is when people are doing awards and stuff like that they don't do tags they they do the lines so right. that must make it easy a given advantage for you yeah no i think that's helped i also think it's helped that i've sort of still Often it's within this world of music that means so much to me. Like, uh, I, even though I grew up in New Jersey, my first concert was country. It was my dad took me and my mom 
to Carnegie Hall, where I just was for the CBS Upfront tonight, sitting in the same seat where I saw that show. It was Niggerty Dirt Band and Steve Martin, who was the opening act. And that changed my life, because I love the bluegrass and I love the comedy. To this day, those are two of my favorite things. And now, all these years later, I sit and I work, the last five years, I work with, very closely with Brad Paisley, who I did a book with, and Carrie Underwood, who I just saw both of them last night, or two nights ago in uh, Vegas. I, I can write comedy for the country world, which I think, you know, most people would think, you know, how does a Jewish guy from New Jersey right, right, yeah. write for country? It's because <laughs> I love it, and I love the voices, and I love the, you know, I actually was a kid who grew up in Jersey, but I watched Hee Haw, so I know... You know what that comedy was, and I know what, and I know how now there's a generation that knows what Hee Haw is, but also watches Saturday Night Live. And how do you blend all of that? See, that's funny because when you talk about Hee Haw, I remember we used to go camping on weekends, and we had the the big camper, and there's a TV, and we used to watch Hee Haw. And I still remember I always had a crush on Misty Rowe. Oh yeah, I always and Junior Samples, right? and I still remember that. And it's so funny, and it's so funny that you say that because. You know, it was funny. I mean, and I mean, maybe it's it's like you know, I'm a picking, I'm a grinning, all this stuff. It was it was funny stuff, and it's just weird. So many people don't. So many shows that people, younger people now don't know about. It's like I always say, you can never find Barney Miller on anywhere. And what's such a great written show? And Steve Landisberg, bless his soul, he would sit there and just have those droll off one liners. Yeah, yeah. And that's like now it's like. It was it was so basic, but like the kids can't see those shows anymore. Well, I'm a. It's funny as a. Com- a lot of my friends are comedians, and uh, I have had to, in various ways, tell jokes. I'm not a stand-up comedian, but, for instance, I toured with Ray, uh, Phil Rosenthal, is one of my best friends, and I toured with the guys from Everybody Loves Raymond. So you know uh, Tom, Oh, Piano. yeah, very, very close yeah, friend. Tom was on the show, because it was right when he had directed yeah. that movie. Yeah, um, yeah. The, uh, with Ray? Yeah, because yeah. I, I remember I worked with Tom in Hartford, Connecticut at The Last Laugh, and he, this is, God, this must have been 1989 or 90, and he turned me on the Anchor Steam beer. I don't know how he knew it, but it's crazy. Oh, no, one of the most interesting days of my life was uh, we did a show called Inside the Writer's Room of Raymond, and we did it like 30, 40 times, and it was a hit. And I, every time I walked out and did four or five jokes to warm up the crowd, then I brought out uh, the guys. And every time it worked until we were at the, I think, uh, was it the Toronto, one of the comedy festivals, and we had a Friday 4 p.m. or whatever it was, 5 p.m. showtime, and we hit what all the comedians, because half, you know, Tom and a, a lot of those guys were stand-ups. Right. Uh, and they all said, oh, my God, we have hit the really crappy audience. Yeah. Like, you know, sometimes you hit it, you're the wrong hour. Everyone wants to go out and get drunk, and they're not there, and they're, they're it's hot, it's too hot, whatever it is. So it was fascinating because I walked out there, and I was like, what's happening? I'm telling the exact joke as I always tell, and nothing. And then they walked out, nothing. And then I watched the stand-up comedians in the group, Tom, uh, was it Lou? No, but it was a few of the guys. And they literally dug in and just kept working the crowd and until they won them over. And they loved it because that's, I guess that's what comedians love to right. do. I'm not a comedian. I like when I got the laugh, <laughs> easily. Yeah, it's crazy. But earlier you said you, you, toured, you toured around with uh, Paul McCartney. Yes. Now, how did that come about? Because that just seems so, it's just like a random thing. It's so cool. But how did that, uh, and why were you touring with him? Oh, that was Rolling Stone. That was Rolling Stone sent me on the road to do a piece. And I, uh, back then, now it's there's less uh, access. But back then, even, this is 98. I don't know. I have to check the year. Uh, But, uh, yeah, uh, 
they would send you on the road for like a week or two. So you just would travel around with the band. Yes, just... and write and interview them and do little pieces from the road. Now, being a Beatles fan, when you went, when you would meet these people, especially when you're younger, were you ever sort of in awe or not sure what to say? Or did you ever like, when you, because you're meeting, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've met Petty and Dylan, I'm oh, guessing. Yeah. Now, and you said you love them. Yeah. But, well, I mean, especially, I mean, when you get older, it, it's when you meet someone, it's not a so much big thing. But when you're younger and you seem to be, Working for Rolling Stone at a young age. Yeah, I was like, uh, you know, Cameron Crowe was almost famous. I was uh, not remotely famous, okay. but I was kind of uh, in that same position of being a young journalist. Uh, and uh, you know what's funny is that I never got nervous around artists my age or younger. But your heroes, the first time I met McCartney, I think I was somewhat like shaking for a second or two. But someone like him puts you right at ease because... Like, and I've said this, like, amazingly, the Beatles are all, were, and I didn't know John, and I've been told he could be a little intimidating, but uh, I can tell you that Ringo's like a friend, and I don't have that many of these artists I would call a friend. Ringo is a friend. He's one of the nicest people, fundamentally the best guys, I've one of the best guys I've ever met. Uh, Paul is really, you know, uh, a wonderful guy. George, I met very briefly, but amazing put me at ease completely uh on the other hand occasionally you'll meet a guy from a boy band who will be a total jerk and you go right. hey the beatles are pleasant you can you can you can try that now my biggest other hero was elvis costello i love him uh total hero and when i first met him and i'm friendly with him now but when we first met i did i wanted to do a career like we call it the Rolling Stone interview, where you go through the entire career. And there were certain things I think he didn't want to talk about. And we got into a fight, like basically arguing over what we would talk about. In It was in a San Francisco over breakfast. And I thought, I am sitting here arguing right. with my hero. Like, And he, more than anyone, he was my like high school, college, absolute role model. Uh, but you get over that, you know. You But yeah, so journalism... I mean, I wasn't the toughest journalist, but occasionally you did get into, you wrangle with your heroes. Dylan uh, is, I named my son after him. I mean, he's such a hero. Uh, and, but meeting him, I was daunted, but he he put me at ease immediately. He was such a, you know, he was so great. Uh, brilliant. Probably the only genius, I mean, of all the guys I've met, I think he's the only one I I couldn't understand sometimes what he was saying until hours later. He literally had a has a mind that is not as narrative as the rest of ours. It is more poetic. But uh, he was great. So you know, you were doing behind the scenes. You're writer. Now you started showing up on those TV shows. Now I said you hosted a show called The Musicians. Yeah. Now what was the music? What was that? It was on Bravo. That was uh, inside the actor's studio had been a big hit, and they decided to do one on music. And they actually approached originally that guy Joel Gallen to be the executive producer. And he hired me to be the writer-producer working with some famous host. Then they could never hire that host because they couldn't afford him or they couldn't find the right person. I think we approached Elvis, I think, who later did his own kind of interview That show, show. was great. Spectacle? Yeah, that, that was, was later. That was a great show. That was great. And but that's... so was mine, except for me. My show oh, was come great. On. And then, in fact, after I did my show, at the same time Spectacle, uh, I worked with a friend of mine, Chris Isaac, who's a great guy doing a kind of show like spectacle we did an interview show it's very hard to get ratings with those shows uh the show i did i'm incredibly proud of i think it was one of the best things i'll ever do uh but we couldn't get a rating on bravo and uh because you know one week we'd have lou reed and the next week we would have 
Wyclef Jean and the next week Tony Bennett and you sort of like it's hard to keep a consistent audience uh, but and the network only wanted McCartney ironically and Sting and our highest ratings were for Randy Newman who's one of my favorites and for Barry Manilow who I had said if you put and I think that was our highest rating I said if you put Barry Manilow and I tr promise me people will watch it so now did you enjoy being from the background of writing did you actually enjoy being you were the host yeah. So did you actually enjoy the interviewing? Because it's, it's very weird. Like when I started this, you know, it's you, you don't know what to say. It's like me. I, just, I do a little research. I mean, I sit there and go, okay, I follow your career. I know your career. I'll sit there and go, IMDB for people. And then I just let it talk out. Right. But it's an hour and it's free. I mean, it's just free form. On a show like that, it's probably very, because you have writers, I'm guessing. And then, no. Okay, so but, so but no one writes the interviews? I mean, you just sat there and said, okay, I'm just going to wait. That's it. where they realized they could save money by hiring okay. the writer to be the host. <laughs> so uh, you, did you write a lot of questions I was before my you own, did it? Uh, I was my own ugly, pretty face. Uh, not, not much. I mean, I've always been such an obsessive with anyone I had on the show. I already had a million questions. And they would want me to plot out what I was gonna do, and I would try to give them a little roadmap, but truthfully, it's like what you're doing. You have to fundamentally have a conversation with someone. If you make it like if that you have to hit this question after this question, it becomes what these artists hate. And the reason like, you know, someone like Ringo will ask me to come in and interview him for some documentary thing. He'll go, you can't believe how horrible it is when you go around the world, how stupid the questions are from people. And you are, you're being asked, usually a pretty model has been hired to read questions that someone, you know, who looks like me is in the back writing and they can't really do it. So I believe in having a conversation. And I think that podcasting and all the things that are going on now, there's a hunger for just conversations. I go on uh, Adam Carolla's show every week or two and talk music and I sense that that people out there just want real conversation. Well, I, I get that when people say, like, oh, we listen to your show, you should have asked this and it's like, I don't want to ask that because I don't, I don't want to, if you want to ask that, it's like with comics, when I used to have comics on a lot, I tell them, I go, don't do any bits. I don't right. want any bits People are like, but they're comedians. I say, yeah, but you know, save your bits for morning radio when you're right. trying to sell tickets to whatever in Topeka, Kansas. Yes, but they don't. People don't understand that. That's if someone's creative, you know, they're going to be funny if in their own way. And the people, can, it's not all about bits for comics. People don't get that. It's like, no, comedians off stage are usually are very quiet. You know, it's yes. ones who are the loud ones are the ones that aren't the funny ones. Oh you no, know? my editor, who I mentioned earlier, who got me into Esquire, David Hershey, who's now a big book editor, said. You know, he tried to do a book on stand-up comedians when we were, you know, back years ago. And he said he had to abandon it because it was the most depressing experience of his life talking it's to comedians. So, okay, so I, as I read your bio, uh, it's Wikipedia. I always worry about Wikipedia because sometimes it's, uh, some of the stuff is not true. Yeah, I don't even know who does it. I've never... That's, no, because that's never, what I found about the show, The Musicians. Now, you, now you had written some, uh, you'd written the, uh, the, the total, total Unauthorized Tribute to Seinfeld? Yeah, what happened was I did a, a bunch of TV books, usually most of the Friends cast... I did a cover story for Rolling Stone, and they asked me to do their books, which were, became big bestsellers. Were you bestsellers. a big fan of the Friends show, or did uh, they, they come up to you? Or I'd written see... a cover story for Rolling Stone when the show, the first season, and the cast negotiated everything very as a unit. Then they said, we'll only do this book if he does it. So then at the end of the series, they said the same thing. We'll do the book if he does it. And that ended up making me a 
a lot of money. So yeah, but it says the official companion. So so what, what technically is the is it is it trivia? Is it I mean, what is it? I mean, you think like it's such like a like it's like you feel like you should be watching it when you watch it. You should be reading it. You know, it's uh, yeah. These TV books were just literally sort of like uh, I would say that they were. Uh, supporting material. They were interviews. They were trivia. They were little essays. Uh, the last one was a photo book that Oprah held up and said, "Friends is not over. You can still have this book." So it was. You're really just part of the, uh, you know, you're part of the packaging of the show. And it was actually. I mean, I liked the show very much. But that led to people asking me to do a lot of TV books, doing a Seinfeld book, uh, and then more recently, I've been writing like. Uh, as told to books for like Brad Paisley. I did a book with CeeLo this last Christmas. Uh, you know, I, I, I am a great believer in being, if you're a writer, write whatever people ask you to write. And if you think you can't do it, you'll probably learn more from doing it than anything else. Like, uh, you know, every time I got, I got asked, I got to ask to write a huge commencement speech last year and I'd never written a commencement speech. But it was a great experience, and I learned a lot. Uh, when the Tribute to Heroes telethon happened, I thought, can I write this? And then I thought, just, that's when you do your best writing, I think, is when you're in that place of wondering if you can do it. So now you've, you've written for award shows. Oh, that's, now, now yeah, what, that's now, most now, of my life. What was, what was your first award show you wrote? Do you remember it was this Yes. Because you were, you were out here. Now, I always ask people when they moved. When you moved from New York to L.A., where was the first place you lived out here? Because I always, always crack up. Because a lot of people come out, they're not really familiar, but they are. And then it's a lot different from back east. Well, I've been here as a journalist. And so I, I demanded that Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone moved me out here. And I stayed at the Sunset Marquee okay. for about a month until I found a place. Uh, they wanted me to live in the Oakwoods, which I've heard from your other shows. Other people have gone to those Oakwoods. I, I refused. There's, uh, there's a documentary about that. Yes, it's which got is, to be. Which is so funny is my agent is on this floor. Yeah. And I saw her on the documentary. I'm like, yeah. oh, my God, I just saw you. And it's just, if people, if you don't know the Oakwoods, it's just, it's like a compound. It's corporate housing. And I think, actually, it's around the country. I think there are, there are Oakwood, Oakwoods around the country. But, yeah, every time you talk to some, like, kid actor who lived there and, that's where they find their first drugs. <laughs> that's where their lives begin well, to go Corey, weird. Corey Haim died there. Is that true? Yeah, that's I where he was when he passed that. away. So, so you, so you moved out here. So, where did you, where did you have they put? They put you up the Sunset Market until I found a place which I, I found on a, a little, right near the Hollywood Bowl. I lived, and it was on a street that had, was not a street. It was like a, a path. It was like one of these little weird, and I lived in the, uh, bottom of a house owned by a. I think a, a giant leading uh, log cabin Republican who was like, you know, was a, so he was a, I mean, my, I'd never met anyone right wing or gay and he was both. Okay. And uh, that was my, <laughs> so I, I, and he was the greatest landlord I ever had. And I lived there uh, and I lived, I've lived all over, uh, lived Beverly Hills sort of with my, uh, when the earthquake happened, I moved in with my fiance, who's now my wife and we've been living in the hills ever since in, in a house. How is it? I mean, because the hills are up there, and for the earthquake, I, I don't know. I, that'd be like I live in Burbank, and the yeah. earthquake. My girlfriend just moved out here, and we had two like a few weeks ago, like yeah. or back to back, and they're the first ones I felt. But when you're in an apartment building, you know, and we were we're on the second floor, and we have a dew level, so it's. But in the hills, it must be a little scary because it must really, really shake. Well, where we live, we have never felt one until the other recently. Okay. We live in good bedrock, but I did feel the one. The other day, uh, and I thought it was something hitting the house. It felt didn't feel like an earthquake. It felt like 
something hit. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope not to experience that again anytime soon. Now, you've been here for a while in L.A. Do, do you do you dig the L.A.? I mean, do, you, do you ever miss the East Coast? I know you said you went home to see your for Mother's Day, but do you ever do you miss the East Coast? Or would you ever sit there if they said, okay, we want to move you back? Or is it because you travel so much that I you get to see? I would never in a million years go back. And when I moved out here, everyone said, you're going to hate L.A. You're such a New Yorker, all this. I love L.A. I uh I love hating the things I hate about LA too. I mean, I, I love being outside. I like warm weather. Uh, I have been, I've been working straight this whole year. I don't think I've had this, this at this morning was my first time off because I did really from Grammys to the Beatles show the next day to the Oscars, to the iHeartRadio awards, to these two up fronts, to the billboard awards last night. I have been, I really have had no time off. And I just love the fact that I knew that I could go sit by the pool and, you know, I already feel relaxed. I find the L.A. very relaxing, uh, probably deadening in a spiritual sense, but relaxing in a practical sense. Well, it's weird. I was just in San Francisco this weekend. It's my first time up there. And, Beautiful. Uh, and I felt so relaxed up there. And just when we stayed in a no the Knob Hill area. Yeah, yeah. And everything's close. And it's like L.A. You get used to L.A. Everything's laid out. Like up there, you know, we parked our car. And then we just said we took Uber or Lyft to go right. anywhere. And it was cool. I mean, the West Coast cities, they have that vibe. It's like you can't complain about the weather. I mean, you, you sit there, growing up in New Jersey, you know how it is. You, know, yeah. you go walk to school and it'd be snowing. And here it's just like if it's 60, we get, oh, my God, it's yes. cold, it's cold. Yes, exactly. Yeah, snow flurries. Uh, I, I, maybe it's because my family's here. I love New York, but I, I get enough of it because I'm there for work. Uh, I, I, a lot of my work life is Nashville, which I love. New York, which I'm from, but still, it, it's weird. I think when you're from New York and you go back, and now it's been long enough that I'm haunted by the ghost of things that are not there. Like, I literally walk down every block and I go, okay, there used to be a coffee shop. There used to be, you know, I see the things that used to be, and I sometimes miss them. So your first, your, well, we're going to talk about your writing. When your first award show you wrote. What My first it? award show was actually the one I did the other night, the Billboard Music Awards for Dennis Miller and Heather Locklear. That was the actual wow. first award show I ever did. <laughs> and I remember because Dennis uh, has a somewhat of a reputation for being a little tough. And uh, same guy who put me into it. I mentioned Joel Gallen. Uh, at the f my first day writing jokes for anyone was writing promos for Dennis Miller. And he read the first one, and we were on like a little sound stage, and he went, yeah, that's funny. And Joel said, that's as good as it gets in what you're doing. Like, if he, the comedian actually thinks that your first right. joke is funny, you're good. And uh, so that was my first one. And then really it took off. Ken Ehrlich uh, is a, a executive producer of the Grammys. He really put me into this in a big way with the Grammys. And then it spread from there to the CMAs, to having doing the Emmys, doing Oscars. Now you've done the uh, Oscars. Yeah. Now... How many times have you written for the Oscars? Uh, in different ways, like five times, because so I do the red carpet show too. Uh, like, uh, so we, yeah, that's not weird, weirdly Emmys. I've done like twelve times, and the the Oscars are a little close to the Grammys, and sometimes it's too close uh, to do. But yeah, no, the Oscars is obviously the classiest uh, one, uh, credit. Have you written for the different hosts? Yes. Okay, now which hosts? Because you know, I'll be honest. For me, and my people say I'm nuts. I enjoyed when Letterman hosted. Oh, I don't know why. I thought yes. that was funny and the, you know, can I want to buy a monkey? And all those stars doing it. Everyone's like, you're crazy, Cooper. That was awful. I thought that was a funny Oscar. Oh, no, no. I'll tell you, uh, 
I that was I think when I moved out here, that was the first one I was attending. Okay. And I thought he was great, and clearly no one else did. No, you know what is the hosting world is so weird, and the negative ones, the ones, the people who get really criticized, they make it so that people are afraid to host. And I was there for James Franco and Anne Hathaway, okay. so I know what that's like <laughs> when it when it does not go well. And uh, it's it's I think you know that, but you have people like uh, you know I've done the Grammys for. 14 straight years and my first two years were with John Stewart then we had one year or two with Latifah Queen Latifah who I just did another show with uh, recently uh, and then we had no host for four years and now we've had LL Cool J it's a hard job to stand up there especially because a lot of the shows I do the Oscars is in a theater but you try standing up in an arena and commanding right. attention and try, much less tell a joke in an arena I'll never forget a uh, Ray Romano and Kevin James uh, coming back to John Stewart and I, and I think it was at that point. I think John Stewart, it was me, John Stewart, Jimmy Kimmel, who was writing for John Stewart, and Adam Carolla, who I now go on his podcast. I think we were the people backstage for that year, and uh, we sent you know Kevin James and Ray Romano came up with a big bit to do like shooting, uh, you know. Uh, water guns and all sorts of stuff and they came back and they said doing comedy in an arena is impossible yeah. it's like and uh, that's sort of i think what steve martin eventually you know he got tired of trying to do comedy in an arena it's a it's a weird deal it's crazy so now you said you do a lot of stuff for nashville now yes. now growing up as a kid you, you liked the country but you also yes. were a big rock and roll yes kid. absolutely so how did you bridge over to nashville i mean how did that happen it's so funny what i've learned about nashville is uh, my friend uh, Troy, his name's Troy Patrick Farrell. He used to drum for White Lion, and uh, he was playing in just he was in a band called Cheap Thrills with two guys from Cinderella who are from yeah. New Jersey. But they live in Nashville, just like his friend John Karabi lives in Nashville. And it's like a lot of these guys are changing from the that did the metal. Now they're going down there and trying to do more of a a country thing. I think country's evolved a lot. It's very different now. It's like it's like rock now. Oh well, yeah. What I mean, half the stuff that was on rock radio when we were kids is now is on country radio i mean the spiritual it's not about no one sounds quite like hank williams they sound like the eagles or they sound like jimmy buffett that's sort of those are two of the bigger influences you know what always bothered me about the southern rock and i love i love like marshall tucker and the outlaws i never liked 38 special i never knew how they even fit in like you sit there like okay Greengrass and high tides you know for outlaws great solo yes. and then it was like 38 special was like this popcorn I mean, like bubblegum southern rock but they are always lumped in like those concerts would be like the outdoor concert be well because they that. had a van zant in there okay yeah, i think it was a <laughs> as long as you had a van zant even stevie van zant right would qualify so, you know, so how did how did the nashville come a call and for you to get start getting involved and now you said you know you're um you love you love nashville i love nashville oh, nashville's the people i love the music i love uh yeah absolutely in fact i just was seeing talking to brad paisley and carrie underwood two nights ago at the Billboard Awards and saying, I can't wait to see you guys in Nashville. And it's a much more, uh, I, I will say, not that this is the reason I love it, but for instance, that show I did, Musicians, I don't think any time in the last 10 years anyone said anything about it to me in L.A. In Nashville, people come up to me all the time and talk about it because it was a show really about songwriters and about the songwriting process and where they people got into that. And that's why I love it is I love songwriters. I love hearing about the songwriting process. There's famous, you know, 
things like the Bluebird Cafe where people tell the stories of songs. It's storytelling. I love that about the town. I also just physically love the town and the people are incredibly warm. I fell in love with it because uh, the reason I got, got there was that Walter Miller, who's 83 and who directed the Grammys until he was like 80. Okay. Uh, he was also the executive producer of the CMAs, which are the best country music award show. They're like the Grammys of country. And he about... 10, 11 years ago said, he noticed that I got on very well with country artists. Like I remember I think Dolly Parton was on with Brad Paisley 10 years ago or something and he saw me write a joke for Dolly or something. He goes, you know how to write for country artists. I go, yeah, I love it. He goes, you gotta come down and write the CMAs for me. And I said, don't you have a writer? He goes, yeah, I've had a guy for 35 years, but I wanna make a change. And I was like, then I've ever since then, I've looked forward to it every year. So it's just, it's so funny just because like, who are some of the, the, the real country artists you like now? Like, the, I mean, is there people that you said, like, I don't really listen to country, but if I was going to listen to the country, you know, I have yeah. a classic rock background. I yeah. love Springsteen, but I love the 80s. I love Elvis Costello. I love, yeah, you yeah. know, I love Pearl Jam. But who would like, for me, who would you say, okay, Steve, if you're going to listen to country, listen to this or listen go check to, this out. Listen to Miranda Lambert, okay. who you probably have heard a little yeah. bit. Uh, listen to Brad Paisley, who's a really great singer-songwriter. There's older artists who you probably have already heard who, if you check out, I think you'd go crazy for their best stuff, like Vince Gill, uh, Alison Krauss, you okay. would love, uh, Carrie Underwood, who's, who's one of my favorite people on earth. Uh, but there's a lot of it I really like. And some of my rock friends don't get it, but I, I like the storytelling singer-songwriter tradition. And frankly, that's more dominant in country than a lot of what's on pop radio now is just entirely sort of hip-hop groove based and it's really the producer getting a good track but i like lyrics i like a story what would you say for you i mean i'm not going to say give me your top 10 but some of your favorite of any of any music genre some of your favorite lyrically written songs like when you sit when you sit there and go it's like it's funny i was like when you think about music i was driving yesterday and they were playing um the opening of bob o'reilly from the peter townsend's new live album yeah and i'm like that is such a great opening, just yeah. the whole thing. And, and there are certain things, and I'm like Springsteen, Jungle End, just such a great yeah. opening. What are some of the ones, like if people said, man, just what lyrics do you sit there and the go? Lyrics, the albums that, when you say lyrics, the ones that speak, I mean, Bob Dylan, Blood on the Tracks to me is the most powerful romantic statement ever. The second one, Bruce Springsteen, Tunnel of Love, which his divorce record, you know, I, it's like when that record came out, someone wrote a review which said, because there's no saxophone and it was really miserable in terms of its perception of love and he was a newlywed and there was no clearance on it so someone some critic wrote uh there's two people who should be very worried by bruce springsteen's son of love clarence clemens and juliana springsteen okay and and within a few it, and it was to me that said it all that's one of my favorite lyrical and juliana was in a 38 special video oh no yeah, see see that's crazy oh no in fact uh i feel here's my jersey connection i feel I, I love Springsteen, like as is, I'm genetically predisposed to be, but I remember I'm even a, I'm as big a fan of Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jackson, one of the greatest groups of all time. And I remember going to see them on their Why is Love a Sacrifice tour? And there was one of the background singers who came out afterward at the Ritz to dance with the audience. And I remember dancing with now Bruce Springsteen's wife. Okay, Patty. And, uh, wow. Patty. So when I remember, like, then years later, 
meeting her on the Tunnel of Love tour. I was covering for Rolling Stone in Worcester, Mass. It opened in Worcester, Mass. And I talked to her, and she went, I can't believe I'm in the Springsteen band. I go, well, to me, it's a step down from the Jukes. Right, that's so funny. <laughs> a lot of people don't know their Southside Jukes. And it's funny, because you know, we listened to WMR and Philly and YSP in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. And they would play the, the live tracks that people wouldn't hear. You know, And then we would hear the old Springsteen, even the Springsteen, like from the... Uh, Main point or whatever it's called, yeah, yeah. A point or whatever. But yeah, we would hear that stuff and we would listen to it. And it's like the Hooters. I grew up I, the Hooters. I was out in college. The Hooters and a band I love, Tommy Conwell and the Young Rumblers. I I love Tommy I, Conwell. I assigned a Rolling Stone feature on the making of a band, which was it was a profile of the Jane's Addiction, who were big signing, and Tommy Conwell, who was a big signing, uh, and. It was. We predicted that we thought Tommy Conwell was going to be the next Springsteen, or at least the next Brian Adams, and nothing ever happened. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's because I remember he played with the Hooters at my college, and then now I'm on Facebook. I have a thing where he, I guess he played like he played sang the national anthem and Phillies game. Well, people from my age, you know, that if you're I'm 50, and when you're 45 and up, you remembered. I mean, that Tommy Conwell was cool. I mean, that was like the, that was like cool music. I saw him at was it the main point or whatever. His his manager was the same guy who I think managed the Hooters, Steve. Mountain maybe okay yes but it was yeah Philly uh, I went up there to see Tommy uh, Conwell in the new uh, he was great he was a great looking guy kind of looked like a athletic but I think what it was is he was sort of a year too late because he was sort of that Brian Adams looking kind of guy and Rock turned Rock went more the sort of uh, Axl Rose into uh, you know Kurt Cobain all of a sudden and. He sort of got lost in that shuffle. Now, you mentioned you were on the uh, Corolla podcast a lot. Yeah. Now, how did that come about? I mean, you said, did you meet him when you were writing, or how did that? Uh, his wife, I met his wife, and his wife said, you have to come on the show. And I came on the show, and then he started saying, you got to come in every week. You're, And th- that was it. And uh, uh, I sometimes I don't come in for a long time. Like, I have been away for like three weeks, but... Uh, you know, I think two weeks ago, uh, I had started a feud with Rick Springfield, a sort of joking feud, and we had it settled on the air on the Corolla show. So that was fun. Uh, yeah, it just it came out very organically. And then over the last couple of years, I've brought in musicians who are I'm friendly with to the show, sort of with me. So I've brought everyone from Joe Walsh to Jeff Lynn, Dwight Yoakam, okay. this artist I love. Uh, yeah, so that it just it's a casual thing, but it's been fun. So what is it like when you think about, you know, I mean we have about six minutes left. When you're I mean, you're you're a kid listening to music and it's like what is it I mean, like when you sit there and go, I mean you, you like you know everybody. I mean it's like it's like when I sit there, it's like we could play in the music world six six degrees of six degrees of separation of David Wilde and it'd be two degrees. It would be basically like, Okay, who else do you know anyone here? Boom. That's so funny you say that because uh, not my son. I just came home yesterday, but when I was at the airport, he said, "Dad, I checked. You're less than two degrees from Kevin Bacon." Because okay. he actually, because I was, uh, Judd Apatow asked me to do nine words, and this is forty. And I guess John Lithgow was in This Is 40. He goes, oh, no. He goes, you're one step from Footloose. Oh, that's funny. That's <laughs> uh, funny. But, yeah, no, uh, I have lived out the dream. John Lennon is the only one, I think, I didn't meet because he was dead. Uh, he died when I was in college. Uh, I sure would have liked to have met Elvis. Uh, I have, that. I, whatever I haven't made in I think, you know, at one point I was approached by iTunes to go work for Steve Jobs directly, and I didn't do that. I think financially I would have done a little better if I'd just gone that way. But in terms of 
living out every dream I had as a kid, except for ever being cool myself. I've met everybody I ever loved uh, and gotten to know. Some of them are friends, which right. is a, that's a crazily uh, satisfying feeling. Now, do you have any uh, books coming out soon? Uh, no, uh, the CeeLo is the last one, and I think uh, I'll probably be it, ready to take one on later this year, but I, I, the last one was pretty tough to get now, done. Do, do people seek you out, or do you sit there and say, or do you have someone, do you say, I want to write about this person, and then you seek them? CeeLo, uh, they sought me out. Uh, Brad Paisley and I, it came from Twitter. Oh, I should say my Twitter account is at Wild About Music with a capital W, but Twitter is responsible for a lot of things. Like, uh, believe it or not, I brought together LL Cool J and uh, Brad Paisley, who ended up doing that song that caused such a meltdown, that accidental racist. That happened through Twitter. And then some fan, mutual, some fan of Brad Paisley's who follows me tweeted us both saying, you two should get a room or write a book. And I said, we should just write a book. And it really came from Twitter saying, I had not thought of it. So it happens all different ways. I. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I sort of am inclined to write another book of my own. I think I've done a little too much of the as told to, but uh, we'll see what's next. Now, well, now you said you've been working so much this year. Now, what's next on your docket? Is it is it award show season pretty much over for right now? Uh, I have another award show. I have two more award shows in the next month, uh, and then I'll be a little bit off the award show for a few. Yeah, I I have I'll be uh, I got two more coming up, but I've done. I've already done so many this year, I can't even, my head is spinning. Well, you must love it, because back in the day, there was like three award shows. Now there's like tons. Well, what's weird is that for a while, they were viewed as like old and dead, but social media has brought them back alive, because these networks really love live events. And that's it's not just award shows. Like, I, I do like doing events. Like, and uh, I do all sorts of things, like from doing like Live Earth or, you know, things like that. Uh, I just like, I will write, especially like writing events that have to link music because I think music is so emotional and so entertaining that I like to keep the flow going with the, the words. Now, do you miss the 8-track? No, not remotely. I miss the, I collect a few 8-tracks, but I miss vinyl. I do, I did love vinyl, uh, but I'm not an audiophile. I just, I love the music. I any way I can get it. It's funny, I asked you this earlier and we got distracted. Your, some of your favorite album covers. We never got to that. What are some of your favorite album covers? Because we've only have like a minute and a half left. Uh, I think they're all the ones that killed me when I was a teenager or the ones that still are seared in my imagination. Like Elvis Costello album covers. I said, uh, The Clash. The Clash were like great propaganda. Like I don't even, something about that image from London Calling still, you know, I, I more than the, the progressive rock. I was... Uh, I was a little bit more of a new wave kid, so okay. I loved the Cars. I loved uh, Elvis. I loved all Joe Jackson. Those were like the records. Love Joe Jackson. Yeah, those are the record covers that when I think about great art, it had sort of a pop art. Well, look, look, vibe. sharp was just such a basic cover, just shoes, and oh. it was great. It was classic. It was sharp. Now, do you do you still do you still enjoy? Do you ever just go to concerts and see it? Because it seems like you cover all these concerts. Do you ever just go to a concert and sit down in a seat? Or are you always backstage? Or are you always, I mean, how does it work? Uh, I do, I like to remember that side of it. So I do, uh, I, got, I get a little spoiled from being offered tickets. Uh, but I do still go to shows. Yeah, no, in fact, when I'm in Nashville, I'm going to go to Nashville uh, Monday. And I'll be in Nashville for a week. I'll probably see six shows while I'm there. I'll go to the 
Ryman every night if there's a show because and I'll pay for it you know it's because it's like sex it's better if you pay for it cool. I want to thank you for coming on David it's my great pleasure talking to you. thank you for uh, having people, me. And the, the Twitter again is uh, at wild about music with a capital W uh, that's really it uh, I don't I don't think I Facebook. Someone, okay. I think that's it. Okay. People follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk or email me, Cooper at Indy100.com. Put this date on your calendar Thursday, May 29th at uh, Bob's Espresso on Lacrosham Boulevard in North Hollywood, owned by Robert Romanos, who played uh, Demona Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I'm going to be doing Cooper Talk Live. My guest will be John Kapalos. You probably know him from The Breakfast Club and 16 Candles. He was in Miami Vice. He's on Justified. We're going to do an hour interview. He's been on the show before. We're going to do an hour interview and then open it up to Q&A. He's coming out with an album, Too Hip for the Room. He might play a song. So come out. It's going to be a great night. And uh, yeah. And besides that, as I said, follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. Uh, you can get my app on the Google. If you have the Google Play, check out Cooper Talk. You can download my app. My website's coopertalk.net. I have a ton of episodes up there. iTunes and Stitcher. Just type in one word, Cooper Talk. You can find me there. So yeah. So don't forget, you know, have a good weekend. Have a good Memorial Day weekend. Don't forget, drink your water. Eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. You guys have a great, safe, happy weekend.